0: New York's Joint Commission on Public Ethics voted this week to revoke permission that it granted to former Governor Andrew Cuomo to write and publish what became a controversial memoir on how he handled the COVID-19 crisis. Cuomo, who resigned in August, was paid $5.1 million for the book, but the vote could mean he has to return at least part of the money. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt.
1: The resolution, which was approved by a 12-to-1 vote, says that Cuomo promised not to use his staff or other state resources to help him write the book. It details how he handled the pandemic at the height of the spread of COVID-19 in New York. When the Joint Commission on Public Ethics executive staff gave him permission to proceed with the memoir on July 17th of 2020, the former governor also said he had not yet begun work on the book, and he portrayed the subject matter as a continuation of a previous memoir written in 2012 that focused more on his personal life and recollections than on his job duties. But evidence revealed through multiple investigations, including the state attorney general, the state assembly, and federal prosecutors, found that the former governor had nearly completed the book by the time he asked for the ethics panel's approval, and the probes raised questions about whether he used top staff to help him write and edit the manuscript. Using state resources for personal gain is a violation of the state's public officer's law. The resolution, presented by Commissioner David McNamara, says that the former governor's Omissions and misrepresentations constitute grounds for revocation.
2: It is resolved that the conditional approval
3: letter be and it is hereby revoked.
1: Commissioner McNamara, who was appointed to the panel by Republicans in the state Senate, previously sought to rescind the book deal along with others, but the panel, which was dominated by Cuomo appointees, resisted. Some commissioners have complained that they were not given the details about the proposed book deal and that it was improperly approved by Jacob's executive staff. Cuomo's successor, Governor Kathy Hochul, has since replaced several Cuomo appointees with her own choices. The lone objector to the resolution was William Fisher, a Cuomo appointee who remains on the panel. Fisher said he disagreed with the resolution's finding that Cuomo misrepresented the book's contents as being unrelated to his duties as governor.
2: It's not a series of speeches he gave to the state legislature. It's not the transcripts from his daily press conferences nor a simple recounting of what the governor in his office did during the period of time covered by the book
1: Fisher offered to support an amended resolution, but the 12 other commissioners did not agree. The ruling means that Cuomo has to reapply retroactively for permission to publish the book. If Cope does not grant that approval, the commission could try to force the former governor to return all or part of the $5.1 million in profits he made from the memoir. A spokesman for Cuomo, rich as a party, called the vote the height of hypocrisy and claims that Governor Hochul and leaders of the legislature who appointed the commissioners routinely use their own staff for political and personal assistance on their own time. As a party denies that Cuomo illegally used government resources for the project, saying that staff who helped the former governor volunteered their time. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
0: listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, as we just heard from our Karen DeWitt, New York's Joint Commission on Public Ethics, voted this week to revoke permission that it granted to former Governor Andrew Cuomo to write and publish what became a controversial memoir about how he handled the COVID-19 crisis. Cuomo, who resigned in August, is paid of $5.1 million for the book, but the vote could mean he has to return at least part of the money. Your reaction to that news this week?
4: Well, I don't know whether it's appropriate or not, but 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 I don't think it's going to happen. He was given permission by the appropriate body at the time, which has now been replaced by other people, which are now saying give back the money. But you know, once you get that okay, you've got a pretty good court case for keeping the money, I think. As I have mentioned too many times, David, I wrote a book about his father and I didn't see a suit. So, and it was a much better book than his book, but that's not the way we do this judges. You know, at the time. It looked like America's basic savior. He was the anti-Trump and all the rest. And people said, can't get enough of him. And they gave him all this money for this book. You know, it doesn't seem justified. The publishers certainly aren't going to see much money, but they gave him the money. And I have a feeling
0: that he's going to keep it. Yeah, it led to an interesting discussion you had with the New York State Assembly minority leader, Will Barclay, the Republican, of course, no ally of the governor or the Democrats. But he talked about Jacob and the issue of how do you make it fair and beholden to the people rather than the person who appointed the members. He had this idea. He said a proposal and he promised. You asked him if Republicans ever end up in the majority, would you keep this promise? He said, I, I can promise that. And essentially it was an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on a ethics board.
4: Well, here's my sense of it. You do not give legislators the power to look into their own behavior You have to have an outside group, and how you get that is very difficult to think through. I mean, the moment a governor appoints people to the group that is going to look over his shoulder, you better believe he's going to appoint people that are basically helpful to him. The same thing goes when you get a group of legislators who are supposed to do it. It's a phony issue because the fact is we have to have ethics committees, and the politicians know it but then they set up ethics committees that are anything but impartial it's terrible not only that we just had a case in which one of the ethics groups brought charges basically against a group of lobbyists you know what we didn't see who the lobbyists were lobbying i wonder why that was Because the people who were bringing the charges knew full well that an awful lot of their colleagues would be implicated if the charges of illegal activity, basically, were brought against these lobbyists. What a bunch of nonsense.
0: Well, one of the things that Barclay was crowing about was the recent elections and the Republican wins around the state, particularly on Long Island, where bail reform is a big issue. And he, in general, said that Democrats have pushed the issues too far to the left. And that's what we were seeing, the response to that in the elections. But when it came to bail reform, he said there was interest by Republicans to reform it. But Democrats, again, pushed too far. The idea that a judge can use their discretion to decide whether that person should get bail.
4: Well, you know, bail reform is one of those issues in which it is right to have bail reform. If you have unlimited amounts of money and the judge says you have to put a million dollars to go free for now, you do it. You got the million, you use it. Whereas somebody who hasn't got 52 cents, that's another whole story. And the only thing that bail is supposed to do is to say, if you put a certain amount of bail down, it will assure the court that you will show up when you're supposed to. Now, look, this is something that is basically, I hate to say this, but racist to the core, because not only black people, but others certainly fall into this paradigm of unfairness. Nevertheless, we do know that our prisons and our courts have huge numbers of people who are of a minority. And so, you know, it is something that appeals to the uh, judgment of voters who say, I don't want somebody getting out and committing another crime, which, of course, they do sometimes. Why? Because they've been consigned to a system in which they are undereducated, underappreciated and end up in a merry-go-round that never stops.
0: And that brings us to prisons. And the Mm. issue of six in New York are set to close. And that had the minority leader, Barclay, upset, calling the governor political for this plan, part of her, quote, criminal justice reform. But we know that the United States of America is the most incarcerated country In the world, our prisons have been filled, and we're seeing, in many cases, crime go down, which leads you to the statement, do we have a prison industrial complex? He said he didn't think it was that in this case, but it seems like the evidence is overwhelming.
4: I agree with you, David, and that's exactly what's going on. you got these prisons. The assertion by the authorities is that they are underpopulated and we don't need them, despite the fact that in some prisons there's double bunking, which is not supposed to happen. In other words, two people in a cell, which leads to all kinds of violence and bullying and everything else. Nevertheless, this is the way in which many of the upstate communities that have prisons survive economically. And you know what they want they want to keep it going even though it's ridiculous if you don't need the prisons why do you have them what to set up an economic system that will support a population what about the people who are in the prison and then the other thing is there's an argument and we talked about it he and i in which people are saying close sing sing it's very valuable property But do they think about the fact that the prisoners, maybe a mother, maybe a father, maybe a brother, maybe a wife or a husband, can't get upstate very easily? It costs too much. It's too far away. So a place like Sing Sing makes a lot more sense because it's closer to where the people who are incarcerated, not always, but mostly, come from.
0: Well, we're seeing the race for governor heat up with more candidates entering as well as state attorney general in the governor's race. Current Governor Kathy Hochul has now six endorsements from state assembly members. Endorsing Hochul is Assemblywoman Kathy Nolan of Queens, Peter Rabate of Brooklyn, Danny O'Donnell of Manhattan, Bill Conrad of Tonawanda, Monica Wallace of Lancaster, Karen McMahon of Williamsville. She seems to be cognizant of the fact she needs support from New York City as well as her own area. But you've got Tish James in the race, Jermani Williams jumping in and others, which uh, in a crowded field
4: could be anybody's ballgame. You know, David, I ask everybody on the congressional corner from New York, and many of them are, you know, are you supporting uh, Hogel? And there's an awful lot. Of <laughs> yes, eventually, I'm sure people will come around to where they think their best interest is. But right now, the fact that so many people are equivocating when it comes to supporting Hochul indicates why they're going around trying to get people to support her. I would do the same thing if I were in her spot. But in a primary where you have a person from upstate New York, where governors don't usually come from being the candidate, and you have somebody like Tish James, who is, of course, a woman and is of color and is not from Buffalo, but from the New York area. That is going to be a very contentious race. And now you have other people jumping in. We don't know who is going to steal votes from whom. That is for sure. We don't know that yet. But it'll be fascinating when Lee Maringoff and the pollsters and the others come out and try to make some sense out of this. Right now, most politicians are holding on tight and saying it's too early to make these decisions. And that's why they have to go around and try to get people in office to support them. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartal.
0: are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, or DOCS, has announced that six prison facilities across New York State will close on March 10, 2022. Among them is the Mariah Shock facility in Essex County. Officials in the region are not pleased with the decision, not only because of the community impact, but the loss of the unique programs provided at the facility. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley explains.
5: The Mariah Shock Incarceration Correctional Facility is a minimum security facility with a current staff of 107 and 74 incarcerated people with a capacity of 300, according to docs. Republican Town of Mariah Supervisor Tom Scazafava is astounded that Mariah Schock was chosen to be shuttered because he says the programs there are much different than in other correctional facilities.
2: It's actually a program that offers alcohol and substance abuse treatment. and You have education classes. Most inmates leave there with a GED. They have work programs and it's a six month sentence. Many of those sentences were reduced from, from a three to five year sentence. So I was really surprised to hear that they um, would close that facility. I do understand, you know, that the inmate population is decreasing, but that's the kind of programs that are needed what Mariah Shock provides. So I was really dumbfounded as to why they would, would close that facility.
5: Republican State Senator Dan Steck of the 45th District plans to challenge the decision. In the case of Mariah Schock, a unique program. A lot of your progressives, they wanted different programs.
0: They wanted to treat substance and alcohol abuse. Mariah Schock, I mean, that was a special program created to do that. So I was very surprised and disappointed to learn that they're closing that. That's the program that you would think that they would be sending more people to and investing more and in, not getting away from. You know, I'm not done with the Mariah Shock issue, you know, because I think that there's a a special uh, circumstance here. You know, I mean, Friday, Governor Hochul said we need more alcohol and and drug treatment. Well, guess what? That's what they were getting at Mariah Shock.
5: Supervisor Skazafava says it's not just local and regional officials criticizing the plan to close Mariah Shock.
2: Former inmates are writing letters as to how that program turned their lives around recidivism rate is much lower in that program. So again, you know, what their reasoning is, I I don't know, it befuddles
5: me. North Country Chamber President Gary Douglas calls the entire prison closure process flawed and short-sighted.
2: The other thing that makes no sense is that they're not really factoring in what the redevelopment prospects are for a site after they close it. I mean, the state should care about that.
5: New York State Correctional Officers and Police Benevolent Association President Michael Powers echoed that sentiment during a WAMC interview.
3: They're being shuttered with no plan in place. No plan in place. There's nothing in place. I can count probably 16 shut correctional facilities since 2009 or 10 that are just vacant lots that could be used for rehabilitation purposes a better consistent model of rehabilitation that we've been harping about it all falls on deaf ears. No no conversation with the stakeholders.
5: The inmate population will be transferred to other institutions and the Department of Corrections will work with unions regarding staff transfers. The state expects to save $142 million by closing the six facilities. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley.
0: The American Lung Association's fourth annual State of Lung Cancer Report was released this week and finds black New Yorkers are more likely to be diagnosed with lung cancer. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas
3: reports. The report highlights how the toll of lung cancer varies by state and examines key indicators throughout the country, including new cases, survival, early diagnosis, surgical treatment, lack of treatment, and screening rates, and as the disproportionate impact of lung cancer on communities of color. It finds New York ranks in the top five states for five-year survival, early diagnosis, and surgical treatment. But the state's black people are 22% less likely to be diagnosed early than whites, a window in time when lung cancer is most treatable. Trevor Summerfield is ALA's Director of Advocacy for New York State, Massachusetts, and Vermont.
6: There's no real simple answer, such as like an A leads to B or X to Y, but the ongoing effects of systemic racism, inequities, and segregation play a role in health disparities overall, and that includes black Americans in New York State. These historical inequalities contribute to poor living conditions, including tobacco use, exposure to air pollution, violence, stress, a shortage of primary care physicians in historically underrepresented com- communities, and lack of access to affordable quality health care and nutrition. And sadly, as the 2021 state of lung cancer illustrates, These disparities result in poorer patient outcomes for racial and ethnic groups across the board, but we obviously see that in the 22% discrepancy in New York State among black Americans as opposed to white.
3: The national lung cancer survival rate is 20% for communities of color and 18% for black people. Summerfield emphasizes that early diagnosis is the most important thing when it comes to lung cancer, and New York ranks 26th among all states for the disease.
6: We're third in the nation for survival at 28.1%. New York is fourth in the nation for early diagnosis, 29th in the nation for lung cancer screening at 6.2%, second in the nation for surgery, at 28.5 percent and that goes in line with early diagnosis as well. I think that should be noted in New York State in particular. Um, The earlier you can diagnose it, the better the options are for surgical removal. Um, 28th in the nation for lack of treatment.
3: Summerfield says over the last five years, the survival rate in New York improved by 14 percent. The rate of new cases improved by 3% and the early diagnosis rate in New York improved by 39%. Summerfield adds the New England states are trending along similar lines.
6: If you look at the communities where people are suffering from lung cancer, there's a pretty direct correlation between the inequities they face, poverty, pollution, whatever the case may be, but there, there, are, definitely, there are correlations to be made. Um, not just in, in, in New England, and in, in New York, but across
3: the country. Massachusetts ranks 29th among all states. Its rate of new lung cancer cases is 61 per 100,000, higher than the national rate of 58. No racial disparities were found in Vermont, which ranks 28th, and also has a 61 per 100,000 new cases rate. In 24th ranked Connecticut, The report found Asian Americans or Pacific Islanders are least likely to be diagnosed early. Its rate of new lung cancer cases matches the national rate of 58 per 100,000. ALA's report finds Kentucky has the highest incidence rate of lung cancer in the United States. Neighboring West Virginia ranks the worst in the nation for smoking. There's a link to the findings at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
0: You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The recently passed $1.2 trillion federal infrastructure package includes several measures related to limousine safety. Congressman Paul Tonko recently gathered with families of the victims from the 2018 Schoheri limo tragedy to mark its passage. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard was there and filed this report.
7: Joining several of the family members at Amsterdam City Hall, Representative Paul Tonko, a Democrat from the 20th District, applauded their efforts in helping craft safety legislation at both the state and federal level.
8: They stood. They stood with me and my colleagues every step of the way, fighting for it to become law. They gathered support, prepared for hearings, called and wrote to members of Congress and staff members. They shared their stories painfully, time and time again, and refuse to allow inaction.
7: The limo safety measures included in the federal infrastructure bill will fund states to impound unsafe vehicles, mandate the U.S. Department of Transportation establish a mandatory annual inspection program, require limo operators to share vehicle inspection data with customers, and create a formal definition of limousine in federal statute, among other provisions. It comes just over a month after the third anniversary of the crash that killed 20 people, and two months after a criminal trial where Naaman Hussein, operator of the limousine company involved in the crash, pleaded guilty to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide for five years probation and 1,000 hours of community service. Kevin Cushing, who lost his son Patrick in the crash, reflected on the effort to pass legislation during a painful time.
5: Let me start by noting
2: that this has been another very difficult year for all of our families with the recent and very disappointing criminal trial result. Justice simply wasn't served for our families. Having said that, that's not why we're here today. Today, with the passage of the infrastructure bill, we take a major step forward in making the limousine industry a safer Industry.
7: Cushing thanked Tonko, Congressman Antonio Delgado, and Senators Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, all Democrats, for pushing for the passage of the bill. Jill Richardson Perez, whose son Matthew Coons died in the tragedy, said when she thinks of what the families have accomplished, she thinks of the children affected most.
1: There are children that have been left behind from this tragedy that some of us have also made a promise. We've promised to look out for their futures. We are going to take them under our wing and make sure this world is a better place for them now. And we have just done that.
7: Tonko, who, like many of the crash victims, hails from Amsterdam, told the families that their work and their loved ones would be forever connected to the new safety laws.
1: I could
8: not be prouder to call you my friends and colleagues in this effort and partners in this endeavor. I feel that we have this bond that will live forever. And I also have a vision of great young adults gathered together applauding this in another world, knowing that this lesson, painfully learned, is making a difference.
7: For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard.
0: And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2146. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.